Amen, Lord. And we ask that you would come and you would establish your government soon. In the meantime, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two men held a great big sign. Repent, for the end is near. This car came screeching to a halt and out the window the man yelled, Stay away from us, you religious freaks! And he jammed on the gas and he's heading off down the road. Only a couple of seconds later, the skidding is replaced by an engine going really fast and then plunge right into the river. One man looked at the other man and said, Do you think we should have said turn around the bridges out? Religious freaks have never been in short supply, nor have people who have poured out their disgust on those religious freaks, those men and women who take their thoughts too seriously. Dust and ashes have flown in the face of God's people and the face of people who think, who call themselves God's people. But that hasn't stopped us from warning them just the same. Two of the most important religious freaks that have ever lived began their religious freakiness with the same sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change your mind about how you are living because God's kingly reign is available to you right now. You'll remember that this is now the third time we've mentioned this big idea in our series through Matthew. We repeat it because Matthew repeats it. First in chapter 3, then in chapter 4, then in chapter 10, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, We are going to use kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. If you want to know why I do that, ask me later. But in the message in these passages is threefold. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. The second is you must do this repenting because the kingdom of heaven, the reigning of God, is where... What God wants done gets done. And you can be a part of that. Which is the third thing that we get from these religious freaks is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The power to do what God wants to get done is available. It's as close as the end of your fingertips. Anyone who would simply accept God's power for life and godliness has it available. Now, thus far in our series through Matthew, this has been the emphasis that Matthew has made. Every time that he has mentioned the kingdom of heaven, he has always used it in the sense that the kingdom of heaven, the power of God, is available for you right now. In chapter 13, though, we find that the emphasis changes a little bit. Jesus emphasizes here the future aspect of the kingdom. The reign of God will one day be vastly greater than it is today. Habakkuk tells us this, for the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Notice it doesn't just say the knowledge of God. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The second half of Matthew 13 could be seen as a commentary of sorts on this verse. Here and in Matthew 24-25, we will emphasize the future aspect of the reign of God. Of God actively making His power do what He wants His power to do. And, we will emphasize that you and I right now can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, you need to understand, a little background again, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, binds the Old and New Testaments together. The good news, so to speak, of the Old Testament is that our God reigns. He is supreme. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. And there is nothing and no one that can stand in His way. Thank you for the Amen. Habakkuk 2 and Matthew 13 are just two of the many passages that tell us that one day God will return and He will remove the last shroud of hiding that fact that our God reigns. Then when we get to the New Testament, the kingdom of God is the good news that our God reigns. And you can enter into that now and can one day enter into it when it is consummated. Both now and in the future, God is reigning. It is already and it is not yet. We are living, to borrow a phrase from George Eldon Ladd, in the presence of the future. future hasn't fully come yet. <laughs> Ask us. We know, right? But we are already living in the fact that God is reigning in His people. Let me quote from George Eldon Ladd because he has a lot of verses. The kingdom is a present reality, Matthew 12.28, and it is yet a future blessing, 1 Corinthians 15.50. It is an inner spiritual redemptive blessing, Romans 14.17, which can be experienced only by way of the new birth, John 3.3. And yet, it will have to do with the government of the nations and the world, Revelations 11.15. The kingdom is a realm into which men enter now, Matthew 21.31. And yet, it is a realm into which they will enter tomorrow, Matthew 8.11. It is at the same time a gift of God which will be bestowed by God in the future, Luke 12.32. And yet, which must be received in the presence, Mark 10.15. Obviously, no simplistic explanation can do justice to such a rich but diverse variety of teaching. If you were paying attention, by the way, notice some things we haven't mentioned yet. We'll get to that in Matthew 21. Stay tuned. So here we are. Up till now, in our study in Matthew, we have emphasized the already aspect. It is already here. The kingdom, the power of God is available at your fingertips. And in Matthew 13, we emphasize the not yet or the future spread of the kingdom. Now I have to take a time out. 
both of these aspects of the power of God, the already available at the tips of your fingers and the not yet because we haven't seen it come in full glory, has to do with what we commonly call being saved. But I need to emphasize that the New Testament is not about getting fire insurance. The emphasis of the New Testament is you and me dropping our arms, putting down our weapons, and joining with the returning King who is coming to reclaim the only territory in the entire universe that is still in open rebellion. The big idea for this passage is you and I must lay down our arms so that you may be taken up by the reclaiming King. What do I mean by this? What are the arms? What are the weapons that we use that we must surrender so that we can receive the blessing of being a part of the kingdom of God? Our weapons are blind eyes. Our weapons are deaf ears, our stiff neck, and our hard heart, all of which are designed so that we can prevent ourselves from actually turning and hearing and being saved. Being healed. Excuse me, I said the wrong word. And being healed. And in our natural state, in our unwillingness to bend our knee, in our open rebellion against God, you can't handle the truth. Which is why the message we gave last Sunday night, choose to hear or you will lose your ears comes into play. This message is the application of the parables in the first half of Matthew 13. And the lay down your arms so that you may be taken up by the reclaiming king is the message of the second half. They are two sides of one quarter that Matthew is trying to get us to see so that we will hear the parables of Jesus rightly. So let's begin our passage and see what we find. Matthew 24. Jesus put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Like last week, the first part of Matthew 13, there is a very earthy, very clear message being said here. Also, like last week, the parable of the soils, the spiritual part here is not quite so clear. But one thing we can note immediately is that the kingdom of God is at war. 
You are members of an army whether you like it or not. Whether you know it or not. Which, by the way, is why so many of us have so many wounds. Because we are warriors and don't want to admit it. The kingdom of God is at war. We have an enemy and he fights against the king and his army. And the main point, however, is that there will be a harvest one day and the fruit of each of the plants will be separated. The big idea from this set of parables about God's action in the world today is that there will come a time when all the glory of God that is obscured today will shine forth brighter than the sun. That deserves an amen. Therefore, lay down your arms so that you may be taken up by your reclaiming King. Now, Jesus continues and He kind of goes fast paced here. So let's hang with Him. Verse 31, He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sown in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I noted a moment ago that the God's glory, God's action in the world is difficult to see. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that very much? That it's not just blazingly glorious yet that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And unfortunately, from many seats, God's kingdom right now is just downright invisible. But, those views, those seats from which God's glory is invisible is due to their own willful, deliberate, intentional blindness. And that, of course, can't be laid to the feet of the king as his fault. More importantly, God's glory must be veiled now. God does not wish to overpower our hearts as anything but only the smallest glimpses of His glory would inevitably do. That's why Jesus takes these jars of clay, these cracked pots, so that He may discover Himself to those who are watching. Paul says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because, my friends, let's just be honest here for a second. It doesn't take a very hard look at us to see that you and I are very ordinary people. Anybody with me on that? Yeah. So this treasure, this treasure that we proclaim is Jesus Christ is Lord, as Paul says in verse 6. This treasure seems very small now. But when we live trusting the promises of God for us in Christ, people will see 
that He is indeed King of kings. He is indeed Lord of lords. That His Lordship in us and that glory will continue to increase until it finally covers the earth as the oceans cover the seas. Yes, the Kingdom of God is a mustard seed. It is a little speck of leaven for now. And a large reason that it is, a large reason that it is hidden is because of my bad attitudes and my finitude and the fact that you and I all need to sleep and shower and use the toilet. But one day, that seed, that leaven will grow until it is a great tree and homes will be built in it. That Leaven will grow to be nourishing bread as a part of Him who is the bread of life. Trust this promise, my friends, that the leaven, the seed inside of you will grow until it can't not be seen. Trust this promise for you in Christ. The Kingdom of God is at work in you. The Kingdom of God is at work through you. And the Kingdom of God is at work in spite of you. This is another reason that you and I must lay down our arms so that we may be taken up by the King who is going to reclaim all the territory that belongs to Him, which is, in fact, all the territory of the universe. And just in case we missed the first half of the chapter, some of you weren't here last week, Matthew has Jesus repeat the warning that He gave in the first half about the judgment and the parables. He says in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in the parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. I will open My mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Again, Jesus speaks in parables because He wants to reveal what is true about the work of God in the world. And this revelation about the work of God in the world is a grace. It is a blessing. And let us not forget the fact that there is also judgment in the parables. The revelation must be received. It must be listened to. It must you must actually read God's Word instead of merely letting the words pass under your eyes while you're drifting off to sleep. Because if you do not choose to hear, you are therefore choosing to lose your ears, to lose your capacity, to lose your ability to actually hear what the Lord Jesus is saying to you. So, now, Jesus explains the parable of the weeds. Starting in verse 36. Then He left the crowds and went into the house, and His disciples came to Him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's His, most, that's his favorite name that He calls Himself, the Son of Man. The field is the word, world. And the good seed is the Son's of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, anguish at opportunity lost lost forever. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let us pause. Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. Fiery furnace. This is not good news. This is not something to rejoice over. This is something to weep about. Now it is couched in good news. The kingdom of God is at war. And God will win. Amen? Amen. How come Chet Harder Jr. gets more amens than I do? Come on people, help me out here. God will win because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want to camp out here for a moment. This is hugely important. You are on the winning side. If you belong to Christ, if you trust His promises, you will win. You will suffer in this world. You will suffer in this world because you are a Christian. And you will suffer in this world because you are a Christian and thereby you will glorify God through that suffering. You will suffer in this world because you are a Christian, and you will glorify your God through that suffering. And one day, one sweet day, you will be rewarded. Paul makes it clear, for I consider the sufferings of this age are not worth comparing with the glory, there's that word again, that is to be revealed to us. Make no mistake. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven right now is very small. It's minuscule. It's microscopic. And it may seem to you insignificant compared to the affairs of the Republicans and the Democrats and who's going to be in the White House and who's going to be in the Supreme Court. But all causes of sin and all lawbreakers will be dealt with in a severe and final manner. My friends, you who have friends, you who have close relatives, who have not yet trusted the promises of God for them in Christ, they need you to lay down your arms. Lay down your blind eyes. Lay down your deaf ears. Lay down your stiff neck. So that they may see you taken up by your reclaiming King. Oh, my friends, the severity and the finality of the judgment compared to the blessing and the finality of the salvation makes the kingdom of heaven a treasure 
beyond price. Which is exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 34. Excuse me, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, in his rejoicing, he comes and he sold all that he has and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was... Oh, I'm sorry. He sold all that he had and went and bought that field. Now, I have a question. You don't need to answer this question out loud, but I, I want to ask the question, what would you sell everything you have to obtain? If you had to give or sell everything you have, what would that be for? Well, certainly the life of a child or a spouse, we would be willing to give up everything. Maybe we would do it if we believed that what we were selling all our stuff to get was worth more, but then you're always, you know, you, you, is it really going to come true? But for something, would you sell everything you have for something that isn't even as large as a mustard seed? Or isn't even really visible like a bit of leaven? You may or may not remember on January 8th was the 60th anniversary of a time when five men answered this question. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian gave everything so that they could win something that was worth eternal value. They are celebrating, they are celebrated now in heaven for celebrating God on earth and going and living and dying for a small tribe of natives who lived in the Amazon Valley. Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries killed, put the point of these verses into a very memorable form. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. My friends, this is why you and I must lay down our arms so that we can be taken up by the One who will give us far and above beyond anything we can dream of or imagine. And this is true because judgment is coming. Again, verse 47 the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out of the separate and separate evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, let's explain the parable. If the fish isn't good to eat, then for the fishermen, at least, it's worse than good for nothing. In fact, it's trash because it takes away room for those fish that feed the people and pay their mortgage. Now, i got to beg you to bear with me. There's a powerful message in, this, in these verses that's really easy to miss. So I need you to hang with me for a moment. The greatness of a thing 
determines how good or bad it can be. If something isn't worth very much, then no matter how fabulous an example of that thing it is, the value really isn't going to increase. We don't talk about the overwhelming virtues of a piece of paper, for example. And if you have one piece of copier paper, it's just as good as another piece of copier paper. And if I were to stand up here and cut through this piece of paper, none of you even batted an eye. What about another piece of paper? (laughs) What would happen if we took the same scissors and cut right through that? Now what do you think? It's a different story altogether, isn't it? 20 bucks down the drain. And my wife wondering, why on earth did I bring that 20 for him? Again, what if we change the subject? We're moving on from something of minor value to something of a little bit greater value. A pillow, for example. Something that is near and dear to all of our hearts and will hopefully be near to us in a couple hours. When we're talking about pillows, little differences in that pillows end up making a big difference. And depending on who you are, this pillow might be worth a lot and that pillow might not be worth very much. But that thing is greater. It has increased. And therefore, the badness of something makes us just want to throw it away or to throw it on the spare bed room so we never have to use it or to put it on our bed because that's my pillow. And anybody takes my pillow has to answer to me. In fact, pillows are so valuable that if you go to Amazon.com, and you just barely hit any kind of search on it, you can find a $120 pillow. And I am sure that if I had done any further search on that, I bet I could have found pillows a whole lot more than that, right? Let's take another step up in the progression of how great something might be. Dogs are one of God's greatest creations. And if you have before you this single greatest chihuahua that has ever lived on the face of the earth. It's the best yap dog in the world over here. And then you have a 10-year-old German shepherd with hip dysplasia. This dog is light years more valuable than that one. Thank you. I needed a laugh. And I know several of you have yap dogs too, so... I'll be expecting mail this week. (laughs) Paper, not worth very much. Pillows, worth a little more. Dogs, definitely worth more. The human being is the chief of God's creation. Accordingly, if a human being has gone bad, he or she will be monstrously bad. And unrepented, will be so for eternity. And they will be in the place reserved for such monstrously bad human beings. My friends, the trash heap of the universe is the fiery furnace. 
You don't want your friends, you don't want your family to go there. And let me say it again. I've said it before. We should never speak of the fiery furnace glibly, thoughtlessly, using it as a swear word because we want people to think that we're cool or we want them to catch the meaning of what it is that we're saying. Far be it from us. Much too serious of a topic. One, however, who by grace through faith has been given, has been granted, has been gifted goodness through trusting the promises of God for him in Christ, will be given friendship with the one friend who will never abandon those who cling to him. And we will be with him forever. Now, here in this parable, Jesus is talking about fish. And around the Sea of Galilee and in much of the world, fish is the primary source of food. If you all of a sudden lost all your fish, you'd have a lot of starving people. So everybody listening to Jesus understood exactly what he was talking about. They weren't buying $120 pillows on Amazon.com, but they were really interested in the cost of fish. So... He used this concept of trash fish, a really important thing, fish, but we've got a really bad example. So let's get rid of that because we want to have more room in our nets for the food fish, for the fish that will nourish us and pay Peter's mortgage. Now, I catch trash fish, and it's an annoyance. I break their neck, and I throw them back in the lake, and ah, I move on. But when it's life or death, it's important. And we pay attention. And they paid attention because they understood the concept. And Jesus wants His hearers, and this is why I belabored this point for you and me, because He wants us to sense the importance of each individual example of His image. Jesus does not want any of them slash us to end up in the trash heap of the universe. And this is why he preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around. Turn away from your sins and turn towards God because the power available to you to change your heart is as close to you as your fingertips. So seize it. And lay down your arms so that you can be taken up by the reclaiming king. Now, Jesus wraps up. He's talking to his small group of followers. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Yeah, right. Sorry, I added that. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe, everyone knowledgeable in the Scriptures who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. They didn't understand what he was saying, and he knew that too. But he wanted to open up the key so that they could understand at a later time. He wanted to tell them that they needed to understand both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't be like those American evangelicals who think that 
the Old Testament is for someone else and is not relevant for today. No. Au contraire. You and I, if you are to be a scribe, if we are to be those who understand and follow after Jesus, we need to understand the whole counsel of God. But then, Matthew, in his fashion, finishes up Jesus' religiously freaky sermon, and he wants you and I to get the point. Verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Wow, this is cool. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? When did this, where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Judgment and grace are in the parables. They took offense at them. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Do you think that people are going to love you because you go around preaching the kingdom of God? Some in this room have lived in a culture where they were applauded or at least no one hissed at you for talking about the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. My friends, I believe those days are past. I don't think that that's true of our culture anymore, nor do I think it will be. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that by God's grace, He sends repentance to His church and that we repent of our sinfulness and are picking up our arms of deaf ears and blind eyes and stiff necks and hard hearts. But unless we repent and unless He sends His Holy Spirit to change our culture, it is not likely that people are going to applaud us for preaching the good news of the Kingdom of God. Our God reigns and Jesus was rejected precisely because the people around him thought they knew all about him they thought they had him figured out and unfortunately the people around us reject us precisely because they believe they already know the message of Christianity and unfortunately whatever cultural Christianity used to be around here in the United States probably a lot of that wasn't really Christianity in the first place and the message they're rejecting isn't the message of Christ at all which is precisely why you and I need to put aside our blind eyes and see where God is moving and join Him there. We need to put aside our deaf ears and listen to hear what God is saying in His Word and obey it, trusting His promises. Put off our stiff neck and be willing to turn Be willing to be a blessing to those who are around us instead of just hoarding it ourselves. To put off our hard heart that refuses to repent of the enormous sins that we have. The rejection of our culture would discourage the contemporary religious freak anywhere. Except 
for, of course, the fact that our God reigns. And our eyes and our ears and our neck and our hearts are renewed as a gift. You don't have to grit your teeth and do it. You nearly need to lay down your arms so that you may be taken up by the reclaiming King. The King who will one day come and seize, reclaim all the land and He will come and fully reclaim all of our hearts. That is a promise you can take to the bank. Almighty Heavenly Father, we come before You because, Lord, we are weak. We are small. We are sinners. And we desperately need You to meet us here. We need for You to show us Your glory so that we can be among those in our culture who proclaim the good news our God reigns. In Jesus' name, Amen.